So we are getting, uh, or closing up the first chapter of James uh, this morning, and this is where James really starts getting into the, the heart uh, of his letter. Um, his letter gets very practical and has some very challenging teachings that are uh, coming ahead, including this morning. But I want us to understand something from the outset is that everything James is going to teach us uh, this morning uh, about obedience is not uh, like it's some disconnected teaching from anything else in the Bible that he's as if he's just worried about people getting busy and doing what God wants them to do uh, and, and living moral lives. Uh, this is part of a flow of thought that really started last week when we talked about temptation and sin. And we're going to put up a slide here to kind of show how James is connecting the dots here because it's so critical to understand. Last week, we talked about uh, our old identity, how we were tempted and sinned against God, which led to death. And that's in, in verse 15. But then James moves on in his flow of thought to what God did. He says in verse 18, God uh, of his own will saved us through the word of truth, that it was his plan, his goodness, his desire to do this. And that as a result, he says, we have a new identity. We are first fruits, he tells us, of God's redemptive plan. And so now he's going to move into what logically comes next. So how do we now live in light of what God has done and who we are in him? What do we do? That's what we'll be filling in this morning. But it's important to understand that the what we do is connected back to our new identity in Christ. And so let's talk a little bit about that new identity. What does it mean in verse 18 when God says, that we are first fruits of his creation. Well, what it means is that God is in the process of making all things new. He is in the process of redeeming this world. One day, we will live in a world as, as, as believers that is without decay, without sin, without corruption. This is part of God's grand redemptive plan. And what James is saying is that as Christians, we are first fruits of that redemptive plan. We are a picture of what it means to have God's redeeming power uh, at work. He gives them this big, glorious picture of the role that they're playing in, in the bigger picture of God's plan. <clears throat> and so as Christians, that's who we are. That is our identity. We are a picture to the world, to the watching world of what God's redeeming power looks like. And so he's going to talk to us about some very practical issues regarding Christian conduct and obedience, but he wants these things to be rooted in the fact that we are first fruits of Christ's great plan. And one of James' concerns is that there are people who claim this new identity. They say, I'm, I am a first fruit. I am a Christian. I have been redeemed by Christ. But everything in their life is suggesting otherwise. And he's drawing directly from a teaching of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, which really the whole letter of James is loosely based on the Sermon on the Mount. But where he's going this morning is connected directly to something Jesus said and warned about in Matthew chapter 7. And James is drawing from that. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7 in Christ's words, because this is really James' launching pad this morning. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. 
but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and how great was the fall of it. And so he says there are two people. There are people who are building their house upon the rock. That is those who hear and do the word of God. And he says there are those who build their house on the sand, those who hear only but do not do. And he says one day that the foundation will be exposed. The storms and the winds of life, which are the trials and tribulations of this life, will test the foundation that we are actually built on. And finally, in the judgment of God, the foundation that we're actually built on will be revealed. Have we been building upon the rock or upon the sand? And James' concern is that there are people who are deceived. That there are people who think that they are building on the rock, but in reality, they're building their house upon the sand. And so what he wants to show us this morning is what it looks like to truly be built on the rock. What does true faith, genuine faith look like? What is the evidence that we see of genuine faith in the life of a believer? And he says it means that we are hearers and doers of the word. He's, he's not saying these things. I want to throw this out here from the beginning. He's not talking about obedience and saying these things because he wants to cause genuine Christians to doubt the assurance of their salvation. That's not what he's after here. He knows that there's this other group, though, of people who think they're Christians but aren't. And for those people, he says, I do want you looking at the foundation and questioning whether or not you really, truly have a relationship with Christ to begin with. For the believers, this is just a gentle reminder of our call to obey. You know, the gospel doesn't stop when, when we get saved. And this is his, his first point this morning. He says, the first thing a tr Christian will do, a true believer, is they will continue to receive the word. The first evidence of genuine saving faith is continuing in the word, continuing to receive it. The gospel uh, doesn't stop when we become Christians. The Christian life, it means that we are continuing to absorb and receive and expose ourselves to the word of God, that it may govern our entire lives. He says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That last sentence there, that's the goal. That's the goal of everything he's saying here. I want you to receive with meekness the implanted word. But they already received it. Verse 18 says they were born again by the word of truth. He says continue to receive the word of truth. And the first way that he prepares them to do that, or asks them rather to prepare themselves, as he said, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. You know, if you're reading along in the book of James with us, you'll notice that this issue of, of anger and the tongue and the way these people are talking about each other and to each other comes up over and over and over again. This is a, a major problem in the church. And James is calling attention to it because he's essentially saying, this is not in accordance with that new nature that God has given you. When you act this way, when you treat each other this way, you are not living in light of that new identity that Christ has given you. 
And he says it will not bring about the righteous life that God requires, meaning it's not conducive to sanctification. It's not promoting spiritual health and and growth. And so he gives us this picture of someone who is slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. And, And if we're honest, I'm sure we've all found ourselves in that camp at some point or another. I mean, nobody does this perfectly, right? I mean, when we get, when we get mad, what's the first thing to go? Listening. We stop listening. We start dominating the conversation. If you get two people who are doing this at the same time, what happens? They just talk right past each other because nobody's listening and both want to do all the talking. And this can devastate relationships. Being slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to get angry can take a toll. It could take a toll on marriage. I mean, think about marriage for a second and how much this can can really plague a relationship between a a husband and wife. I mean, I'm only 35, and and I've, I've talked to a lot of people who say this is a huge issue in their marriage. They say, my my spouse won't listen to me. Anytime I try to talk to them and tell them about how something they did made me feel, they just, they shut me down. They don't know how to have a disagreement. They don't know how to hear anything that that confronts them or or corrects them or, or raises an issue. They just take over and dominate the conversation to make their own point. They're quick to get angry. We see it in relationships between children and their parents between friends. Uh, Think about how we see this play out online. There's a place to see it. Just go on Facebook or read any article ever written where an opinion is expressed and go to the comments. And you can just watch it as you scroll down. Someone says something that upsets someone else and the conversation just deteriorates right before your eyes. And what do we see? Less listening more talking, the posts get longer and longer, more anger, until eventually someone gets called Hitler, and then it all just kind of ends and everybody goes their own ways for a while. We laugh because we've seen this. And so being a good listener, not so quick to speak, not so quick to get angry, it can do wonders in our human relationships. But let me ask you this question this morning. What do you think about your relationship with God? What could this do in our relationship with Him? What if we were quicker to listen to His Word and slower to inject our own thoughts and commentary and objections? What if we were slower to get angry when his word confronts us or says something we don't like or makes us uncomfortable? See, this is what James is really after this morning. He's after us receiving the word with meekness. And he knows that if we're quick to get argumentative and defensive in our human relationships, we're going to be the same way with God. Our heart won't be prepared to receive his word with meekness. Instead, we'll treat him just like we treat others. We'll argue against what he says when we don't like it. We'll attempt to silence his voice by closing our Bibles and skipping over passages that that we don't like. And then we'll do all the talking as we try to sell our own view to God and explain why we don't want to hear what he says. And so in the end, we end up treating God like we treat our our spouses or or our children when it comes to how we listen and 
manage our anger. And so James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, because not only will this help in your human relationships, it's really going to help in your relationship with God and his word. It is a key to receiving the word with meekness. And then he goes on to say this, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. These are things, again, that are not in accordance with the new nature that God has given us, with the new identity that he has given us. But notice, he doesn't just say, put away all filthiness and wickedness and stop there. He says, put away the filthiness and wickedness and turn to the word of truth and receive it with meekness. It's one motion. It is letting go of one thing and turning to the more beautiful thing that God is calling us to. We can't be invested and and taking in and absorbing the filthiness and wickedness and also be wholeheartedly taking in and absorbing and receiving the word of God. And this is something that we we have to do time and time again, isn't it? This isn't a one-time deal. We're regularly finding ourselves having to confess our sin and, and repent of the filthiness and wickedness and turn to the gospel, turn to God's word for his forgiveness and direction. It's a critical part of the sanctification process is repeatedly turning from sin and filth and wickedness into God's word, asking it to convict us and change us. And so if we're going to receive the word with meekness this morning, it means that we come and we humbly submit ourselves to it. We listen to what God is saying. We let his word sink in We let it go to the uncomfortable places. We wrestle with the hard texts. We recognize the authority of Scripture. We hear the word preached. We have personal Bible study. It means we are people of the word, which means being people in the word. But James doesn't stop here. He doesn't say it's just about receiving the word, continuing to receive it. He goes on to the critical next step. And the critical next step is that we must read with the intention on acting on what we receive. We receive the word with meekness, but then we move on to acting on what we received. He goes on to say this, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, what is the deception? It's that there's people who hear the word only and have no uh, accompanying desire or endeavor to obey, yet they think that based on hearing alone, They're right with God. They think their house is built on the rock when in reality it's built on the sand. And these can be people who who are in church. They can be people who are singing the songs and taking the Lord's Supper and going to the potlucks and affirming the right doctrines and creeds. Yet they don't actually have a living, abiding relationship with Jesus. There's religion, but not relationship. They're not living by the word. They don't have a desire to put it into practice. You know, as Martin Luther, who was known for being pretty blunt in his speech, who put it this way, he said, you may as well quit reading and hearing the word of God and give it to the devil if you do not desire to live according to it. Ouch. Saying our lives should align practically with our profession of faith. There should be a desire in the believer to live according to the word of God. And I'll tell you what, and, and I, I guarantee you're going to find this in your personal reading. 
the word can easily feel dead and academic and powerless when we read with no intention to act. The word becomes dry to us when we read without any intention to do. But when we read with the intention to act, to implement, to do the word, I'll tell you what, God's word just comes alive. It's powerful. There's something about having the intention to live by what we're reading that awakens our hearts and minds to the power of God's word. And so here's James. He knows these people. He's seeing their anger on display with one another, the way they talk to each other, the way they mistreat each other, the, the, the running toward worldliness that he addresses throughout this letter. And he's concerned that with the presence of such bad fruit, it's possible some of these people don't have genuine faith at all. And so he's exposing the fact that some of these houses might be built on the sand. And he goes on to say this, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. He's saying this is the person who hears and does not do. He looks in the mirror and immediately goes away and forgets what he looks like. How can that even happen? Well, I, I learned a lot about mirrors as I was studying for this message. And mirrors weren't as common back then as they are today. You know, we all have mirrors. We have them in our house. We have them in our bathrooms. They're in public restrooms. We can look in the mirror several times a, a day. But not only that, our mirrors provide a pretty good image of, of what we're looking at. They're, they're polished and the image is clean. Where back then, it, people didn't have mirrors like we have mirrors today. They weren't as common, but they also were tarnished. They didn't give as great of a picture of what you were looking at. And so it was entirely possible for someone to glance in the mirror and walk away without a real lasting impression of what they look like. And he says, this is the person who hears the word and does not do it. It's the person who can hear the word of God preached on a Sunday morning, but as soon as they leave, they forget everything they heard It makes no lasting impression on their lives. They can sit down for Bible study and walk away and disregard everything that they read, having no desire to actually implement what they read. But James contrasts this with the doer of the word who he says this about. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So he says the doer looks into the law of liberty. That's an interesting phrase. He's still talking about the word of God here, but he ramps up his language a little bit because he's drawing attention to the imperative nature of God's word, the commands of God's word, and he calls it the law of liberty. Now, some of you might be thinking that sounds like an oxymoron. If it's the law, then it's not really liberating. The law is that that restricts and restrains and suppresses freedom. And if that's our thought process, then I would challenge you this morning that you may have a more worldly definition of freedom than a biblical definition of freedom. You see, to the world, freedom is having no restrictions. That's a worldly definition of freedom. No restrictions. But see, to the Christian and to God, Christian freedom is being liberated to be who we really are, who God created us to be, and it is being protected 
from anything that would keep us from being who we really are. You know, Tim Keller uses one of the best examples of this, and I'm going to steal it with an illustration here for this message because it's just so good. Here's a fish, pretty ugly. But he, more than anything, he looks discontent, right? He's not happy. He lives in an aquarium. But he lives in this aquarium and he sees people out on land. And as he sees people out on the land, he's constantly longing to be with them where they are. He's saying, I just want to get out of this aquarium. I want to be out on land. I'm watching them party and have a good time and they're having fun. If I just wasn't so restricted, if I didn't have these, this boundary in place, if I could just get out there, then I could really live and know what it means to be free. Problem is that this is a fish. And fishes, fish, fishes, weren't created to live on land. If that boundary was removed, he'd be more restricted than he is now. He would just be flopping around on the ground. Ultimately, it would kill him. That boundary is what's keeping that fish in an environment that is healthy for him and that allows him to thrive and be every uh, you know, thing that a fish would want to be and fulfill all his fish dreams. God's word works the same way. The boundaries of his word are meant to keep us in a realm that is best for us, that is best for human flourishing and spiritual well-being. And when we go outside of those boundaries, we find it damaging and destructive to our new nature because we were not created in Christ to live outside of God's law. And so it is in this sense that the law gives freedom and liberty It's not just some overbearing and oppressive thing to the Christian. This is why the Apostle John, he said this. He said, this is the love, is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. They do lead to liberty when we live in accordance with God's word. And so he says, the first person is looking into a mirror, but the second person is looking into this law of liberty. But there is a comparison there, isn't there? The law of liberty is a mirror as well, isn't it? It shows us who we really are. That's what God's word does. It shows us our our sin and our shortcomings, areas where we need change. And he says, we need to persevere in the law of liberty. I mean, look into it constantly. We're constantly being made aware of our sin, areas where we need to change. And as we do this, as we persevere in the law of liberty, two things should happen. First, it should drive us to Christ to confess our sin, to receive his forgiveness, stand in his grace. But it also becomes a guide to us to show us how we can align our lives with God's will and his purposes. James says the the doer is persevering in this. They are regularly looking into the word and allowing the word to expose areas that need change, going to God in repentance, going to God in confession, and then by the Spirit's help, aiming their lives to obey what God says. This is the cycle of repentance that results from looking into the law of liberty, the cycle of repentance and obedient faith. And as we do this, We will find ourselves growing in Christ-likeness and we never stop doing this because we're never going to be perfect. We're always, always going to be confessing our sin and then realigning our lives with who God is and what He calls us to. 
But even if we know that, even if we know we'll fall short regularly, we still endeavor to obey. I like the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. In the form of a question and an answer, it says this, but can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? Answer, no. (laughs) In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of obedience. Nevertheless, With all seriousness of purpose, they begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. And like the passage we just read from John says, this is our expression of worship, of love to God, striving to bring our lives into alignment with his word. And James says that the the doer is blessed in his doing, contrasting him with the hearer, right? The hearer is deceived. He says the hearer, he's deceived. The doer, he is blessed which means he is fulfilled. He is being made spiritually whole. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, says the psalmist. And so James calls us not only to receive the word with meekness, but to obey it. And then lastly, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a picture of what this obedience looks like. And he uses the broad term religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled. Because he wants to open the discussion up a bit and say, hey, everybody's got a belief system, a religion, but what would that religion look like if it was truly pleasing to God? If one truly had faith in God? I mean, think about that for a second. Imagine if you were to go out into the world and ask people, what does religion that is acceptable to God look like? What is the evidence of it? And you were to ask Hindus and Buddhists and and Muslims and Jews for their input and you were to combine it together, you would have a list, pages and pages long of rules and regulations, festivals to honor, holy days to observe, foods to avoid, foods to partake in, prescribed methods for worship. And the list would go on and on and on of what it means to have religion that is acceptable before God. But the reality is before we get too judgmental, we can build our own list too, as professing Christians. Christians can build lengthy lists like this. And many of the things we put on our list are also external things that don't really show evidence of a changed heart, of genuine faith. And so James is going to say, here is the list. Here is what really is the proof, the evidence that God is working in your life, the evidence of true religion that is pleasing before God. And he gives us three things, not a million things. He says, first, genuine faith should affect your speech. Again, he goes back to this issue of speech, which the church is really struggling with. And he basically says this. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Excuse me. He's basically saying, if your religion doesn't make a difference in the way you talk to each other, if it doesn't have the ability to convict you of the slander and the gossip and the malicious speech that is coming out of your mouth, then your religion is worthless. If you lost it tomorrow, it would mean nothing. It hasn't made a difference. As Jesus told us in Luke 6.45, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. And so James is concerned about the heart, not just the words. 
He's saying, I'm wondering if there's actual change on the inside, actual relationship with Christ on the inside. And listen, his, what he says about speech, this isn't just about cleaning up their language, like, like not cussing and, and, and using bad language. That's not where he's really going with this. I mean, sometimes we read these passages about speech and we think, oh, they just, he just doesn't want people saying the F word anymore when they stub their toe. But that's not the heart of what he's communicating at. You know what he's saying? He's seeing, a, he's seeing a church that has taken their words and turned them into weapons. And they're using their words to tear each other down and to hurt each other instead of using their words to heal and bless and build up. This is what he's getting at. It's about how they're treating each other. And he says, this is not fruit that we should be displaying in light of our new identity. Secondly, he goes to say this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so this is the second evidence of obedient faith. It's growing compassion for the hurting and needy. Orphans and widows represent our neighbor who is in need. When we become Christians, God pours his love into our hearts which means we should find ourselves with a growing compassion for others who are in need. It means our hearts are, are not only sensitive to those needs, but are willing to act on that sensitivity. It's a compassion that goes beyond good intentions. It's actually making that phone call, writing that letter, paying that visit, preparing that meal, offering that help. It's taking beyond love into action that he's getting at here. And this can make a huge difference, even in small ways. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find myself sometimes going, I got a family, I got a job. When do I have time to really go out and just serve people? As if it always is going to take like a full day or something of, a, of our time. But, and, and I'm preaching to myself here because God convicted me about this. It can be small gestures that go a long way. It might take five minutes for me to get a card and write it to someone encouraging them, but my five minutes could make that person's day. It could make that person's month. A, a, a text or a phone call at the right time could lift someone out of, out of despair and discouragement. Little actions can go a long way. And so this evidence of true faith causes us to look outward toward others. But the last action, he says, is a call to look inward toward ourselves, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that's the third evidence, he says, is a desire for personal purity. And this one's interesting because oftentimes, I think you'll notice this, what people tend to do is pit personal purity and external service against each other. And we tend to sometimes even have a bent towards one or another. You can find people who are all about mercy ministries and helping the poor and helping people, which is awesome, but then they could care less about holiness and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. They'll make great exceptions for ungodliness in their heart and even in their worldview. But then you have other people who are all about pursuing holiness and upholding the righteous standards of God's word and promoting godly values in culture, but they're lacking the compassion of Christ for people around them. They don't empathize with the hurting and the needy and those who don't know Jesus but desperately need him. And so James is giving us a balanced faith here, isn't he? 
He's saying care for the needy should never replace or be promoted above personal purity. And, and a desire for personal purity should never dominate our Christian life to the extent that we're no longer looking outward to the needs of those around us. And if we find ourselves gravitating more towards one than the other, we need to allow God's word to remind us that the true Christian life consists of both. And so the Christian life of faith is receiving the word, but then it is obeying the word. And what that will look like is a tongue that blesses, not curses. Greater compassion for the needy and a greater desire for personal purity. Now let me ask you this. Who does this perfectly here? Who's never said a wrong thing to someone else? Who has never resisted an opportunity to help people? How many of you have served your neighbor perfectly? How many of you have demonstrated perfect personal purity in your life? You know, on one hand, James' word is kind of a reminder that there's always room to grow. But then also, you know, it should cause us to stop and say, God, thank you that my ultimate righteousness, that my, that my right standing before you is not in my ability to do all these things perfectly. Because if it was, I'd be in trouble. But here's the cool thing. There is someone who did these things perfectly, right? Jesus. Even as he was being murdered, nailed to the cross, he blessed with his speech. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He perfectly loved the poor and needy, which is us. Even laying down his own life for them. He alone kept his life perfectly pure before the Father, meeting the law's demand so that we might be saved by his righteousness. And so you know what that means? That means I can rest in the fact that my right standing before God is not dependent on me keeping these things perfectly. That's not what James is communicating this morning. But when I understand that I am free because of Christ's obedience, it allows me to see God's word, not as a path to justification, Jesus did that, but as a, a guide, as a path to sanctification, something that helps me complete that cycle of repentance and, and, and then obedience, saying, Lord, I know that I'm going to fail, and, and I have failed, I'm sorry, but I'm going to strive to obey your word, not for salvation, but to grow in Christ's likeness. And so in the end, we're going to look at our chart one more time. And what we're going to see, you can go ahead and put it up. So we filled in this last section. Our old identity is that we've sinned against God, which led to death. What did God do? He saved us through the word of truth. And our new identity is that we are now first fruits of God's redemptive plan. And so what do we do? What do we do in light of of God's goodness and our new identity, we continue to receive and obey God's word. And I want to ask you this. Are you, are you a Christian this morning? And if you are, is your life aligning with your profession of faith? And if it's not, what do you do? Because the temptation, as we get ready to close here, the temptation is to go straight to this last one, right? Right? It's to say, you know what? I should be doing things. God's word tells me to do things. I need to get busy and do things. But I would caution you against this. What I would say is in your mind, go all the way back to step one, 
Remind yourself of your old identity. God saved me. I was a sinner, lost, deserved death. But yet what did God do? He saved me through the word of truth of his own will because of his own goodness. And he has graciously given me this new identity as his first fruit. And therefore, in light of my new identity and out of gratitude for everything that God did for me, I'm going to continue to receive and to obey his word, to endeavor to align my life with who he says I am, given my new nature. We walk through this repeatedly. And let me, here's the cool thing. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you just realized during this sermon you're not a Christian. Maybe you thought you were. Again, the temptation is to think that we're supposed to go straight to this last one and say, well, okay, man, if the evidence of true faith is I'm obeying, I need to get busy. Step one, that's where we start. Acknowledging our sin to God. Lord, I haven't obeyed, and I'm sorry. And as we put faith in Christ, the Bible says that he saves us through the word of truth. He he forgives us our sins transforms us and gives us a new identity as his first fruits. And then as God's first fruits, we can then begin a life of discipleship and obedience. No matter where we're at, these four things never stop being connected with one another. and We can never pull them apart. Whether we're Christians or not, this is the path to salvation and the beginning of discipleship. But it is also something that we remember over and over as Christians on the path to sanctification. And so as we close this first chapter this morning, let us remember the great work of God. Let us remember our old identity and what he's done for us, who we are in him. And let us strive to live in accordance with that new identity that we have. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much for the good news of the gospel. We love you that Though we were sinners and caved to temptation as you taught us in this first chapter and and deserved death, Lord, that through faith in you, you have brought us forth by the word of truth. And that because of your great work on the cross, we are now first fruits, Lord. And we pray this morning that you would help us to remember that. Remember who we are in you. Remember our identity when we forget, Lord, and disobey and act in accordance with our old nature, Lord. Give us the grace to not just be hearers, but to be doers, Lord, allowing your word to convict us and confess our sin, but also allowing ourselves to bring our lives into alignment with what you want, Lord, what you've called us to, Lord. Help us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry as we receive your word humbly and submit to what it says. God, help us not to be forgetful hearers as we leave here this morning and as we read our, your word in private study, God that we would retain what we hear and and read it with the intention to do it, Lord, with the intention to obey it, to implement it into our lives. Let that be a revelation for someone here this morning, Lord, that, that God's word is meant to be read with the intention of practicing it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us ultimately for not doing these things perfectly. Lord, we turn to you in confession and repentance and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. 